Hello and welcome to the Informed Animal Ally presented by the Vancouver Humane Society. This is the Animal Ethics Podcast where we share the ins and outs of topics like cruelty, legislation, and advocacy here in BC and across Canada. Hi, I'm Amy Morris, Executive Director of the Vancouver Humane Society, and I'm here with VHS's Communications Director, Chantelle Archambault. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of our Animal Cruelty series. This month, we're discussing fishes, who are often overlooked both in animal cruelty legislation and in public discussions of animal cruelty. Traditionally, fishes, plural, refers to the animals when there are multiple species, but we'll be using this word to refer to any instance of multiple fish animals in recognition that each fish is an individual being. For a long time, there was a common misconception that fishes were not sentient at all, that they could not really experience emotion or pain. And unfortunately, this myth still persists today, despite being debunked through science. We know now that fishes have complex internal lives. They have social structures, they play, they avoid feelings of pain and seek out enrichment like any of us. If you'd like to learn more about that and the science behind fish sentience, you can visit vancouverhumane.ca slash fish. Today, once again, we'll be diving back into the legislation around animal cruelty and what protections, if any, are available to fishes in different contexts. And as always, please be aware that there is a content warning for graphic descriptions of animal suffering. We recommend having a plan in place to process negative emotions that come up as a result of this discussion. So Chantelle, what have you learned in your research about laws around fishing? Yes, so as we've mentioned in previous episodes, Quebec is the only province in Canada that legally recognizes animal sentience. And fortunately, this does apply to fishes. They do recognize that they are sentient. Um, In general, fishes raised or caught for food are covered under the Federal Fisheries Act in Canada. That act has been in place a very long time, since 1868, to regulate fisheries and fish management, including protecting fishes and their habitats and preventing waterway pollution. The law has gone through some amendments that weaken protections, but then in 2019, it added new provisions that improved on the original act. But there's still a notable gap with regard to the welfare of fishes. So the consideration uh, for fish protection in this act is mainly concerned with maintaining fish stocks. And as we've mentioned before, that is um, a reference to their monetary value, not them as individuals. And that's them as a resource rather than protecting the welfare of fishes. And this is something when we get to talking about wildlife in general, that's a really common theme. The focus in general is just on preserving the existence of a species rather than making considerations for the human impacts that are caused on them. Yes, absolutely. And we know that many of the practices in harvesting fishes, as that's called, because fishes are often not considered animals, they're more considered a resource like a plant would be, those practices cause immense suffering. So for instance, let's talk a little bit about aquaculture. Really, in our research, we haven't been able to find any laws that specifically outline the way fishes should be killed, which means there are no penalties for those who are fishing or kill fishes inhumanely. 
talking about aquaculture, which is also called fish farming, it is included in amendments to the Fisheries Act. The fish farms do pose major welfare problems for fishes, both those being farmed and those in surrounding waterways. Carnivorous farmed fish like salmon, halibut, and tuna are fed diets made with fish meal and fish oil made from smaller wild-caught fish. Open net fish farms in particular are a major issue for surrounding fish because they're placed in the water, which means all of their waste, disease, and chemicals can seep out to the surrounding ecosystem. Fishes on farms are often kept in cramped and crowded conditions with no enrichment at all. According to a 2016 study by Royal Society Open Science, about a quarter of farmed fish end up floating lifelessly at the top of their tanks, and they exhibit behaviors in brain chemistry that reflect stress and is reminiscent of the signs of depression that can be found in mammals. Yes, and to your earlier point, that's just further evidence that fishes are sentient and can experience distress. So we should be considering their welfare as we would with any other animal. Definitely. And I think it's just evident where we know that when we're stressed, we're more likely to get sick. And so when fishes are stressed in close quarters, they're more likely to get disease and parasites. Um, Farms can combat this by relying heavily on antibiotics, but those antibiotics can lead to drug-resistant infections in humans, something that we understand is deeply impactful. And both antibiotics and parasites can make their way into surrounding water and impact wild fishes and other mammals. According to the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance, the majority of First Nations in BC are opposed to open net fish farms because of the impact of sea lice and viruses on wild fishes. The federal government is currently working to phase out open net fish farms in BC. Uh, Bill C-258 passed the first reading in Parliament in March, which would amend the Fisheries Act to prohibit fin fish aquaculture for commercial purposes in Canadian fisheries waters off the Pacific coast except when it is carried out in closed containment facilities. So there is some hope of removing open net fish farms and there's a number of groups advocating for this. Yes, we will hopefully talk about advocacy on that topic in a future episode. But for now, uh, the governing body responsible for day-to-day operations on fish farms is typically the provincial government, except in PEI and BC, where it falls to the federal government. The Atlantic provinces are the area that produce most of the farm fishes. So they have their own provincial acts. Nova Scotia also has a dedicated advisory committee for aquaculture. So again, it's kind of a patchwork of legislation. In BC, fish farms are managed under the Pacific Aquaculture Regulations. Generally, like in BC and New Brunswick, specifics like harvest, which is referring to the slaughter of fishes, and habitat protection can be specified in the specific farm's license rather than standardized in the regulations. So again, it's it's not only a patchwork province by province, but it can be a patchwork depending on which farm you're looking at. The National Farm Animal Care Council also has a code of practice on salmonids as of just last year, 2021. As we mentioned in the last episode, the requirements of this code are not proactively enforced, and we couldn't find evidence that there have been cruelty charges against fish farms 
for the treatment of fishes, despite evidence that farmed fishes do suffer, of course. But it's reasonable to assume that the salmonids code of practice would be treated the same in the law as the other farmed animal codes of practice. So in other words, even where the codes are enshrined into law, like in BC, they're used to protect the industry rather than the animals by providing a defense that if a practice is allowed, it's okay, even if it causes suffering. Yeah, and this is something that I think we'll keep coming back to. Really, under the law, it's important to think about the way the law is written. Is it written as a defense for the industry, or is it written to help animals? And the majority of the time, it's written as a defense for industry. Yes, it's very unfortunate that often when there's a choice to be made between profit and animal welfare, the choice is for profit. So going back to the code, one requirement is that methods of euthanasia, slaughter, and depopulation must be quick, cause minimal stress and pain, and result in rapid loss of consciousness followed by death without the fish regaining consciousness. So that's kind of a unclear goal. Electrical stunning is one of the allowed slaughter methods, and that's not 100% effective as any method would be. The code acknowledges that the use of ice slurry, which is a combination of freezing and asphyxiation in non-oxygenated water mixed with ice, is not a quick or painless slaughter method, but that method is still allowed for the next two and a half years. Absolutely. And interestingly enough, I mean, this is specifically a code of practice for salmonids. So if you think of all the other species of fish that there aren't laws in place around or even standards in place around the unacceptable methods of slaughter, there's just countless ways that fishes suffer on a really large scale. Exactly. Yes. Talking about industrial fishing, this we know is also really harmful because it results in the mass deaths of fishes and also bycatch, which is the accidental capture of non-target species like dolphins, sea turtles, and diving birds. Two of the most common methods used in commercial fishing are longlining, and boats use lines that can extend for up to 50 miles with thousands of baited hooks branching off from the main line. In 2018, a fishing magazine reported that the Canadian government was supporting a shift to longlining, but the federal government released an action plan on reducing bycatch from longlining in 2019, so it's really not clear where this is going. One of the things we do know is that these lines sometimes come unattached, and then they're essentially um, problematic for all of the bigger animals like sharks, dolphins, whales, sea turtles. And then there's bottom trawling, which is a large net with heavy weights that's dragged across the seafloor, scooping up everything in its path, including damaging sensitive marine habitats. Bottom trawling was banned in 2019 in marine protected areas, but that only makes up about 6% of Canada's marine areas. The focus there is on conservation of those specific areas, rather than thinking about how this practice fundamentally threatens the lives of welfare of animals, as well as really critical habitat that we have under the water. Yes, and I think it's a really good point that you made that the waste from fishing equipment 
also is creating a pollutant and a danger to fishes and other animals in the water. And that can apply to equipment from industrial fishing and also individual recreational fishing. Um, Moving on to individual fishing, when we talk about individuals catching fishes, that can be separated into two categories. So recreational fishing and subsistence fishing are, are two different types of fishing. Subsistence fishing in Indigenous communities is done through methods that focus on maintaining the best life cycle of fishes and conserving fish populations for many generations to come. On the other hand, recreational fishing by individuals, it makes up a small percentage of fishes caught in Canada, but it still causes suffering to fishes. So even when fishes are released after being caught for leisure and sport, The use of hooks causes pain and tissue damage to the fishes. And then the change in pressure from pulling up some fishes out of the deep water can result in barotrauma. For example, rockfish can experience barotrauma. They have specialized gas-filled sacs that they use to control buoyancy. And when they're reeled up and brought to the surface, they can't release the necessary gases. And this blows up their eyes, their stomach, their vent. If the fishes are quickly returned by a descender, they can survive. But in many cases, they're just thrown back and they continue to suffer or die from their injuries. While there's education that goes into this, there's no laws, likely because they would be very difficult to enforce. According to research, 18% of released fishes die of injuries and another 22% of the surviving fishes have their vision permanently impaired. And I have witnessed this firsthand. I was on a boat where people were fishing and the reality is you don't know what species is going to come up on that hook. And so even if you're not intentionally fishing for rockfish, Unfortunately, it can happen and many people aren't prepared uh, to essentially have the right equipment to support them in recovering. And so it, it's just really detrimental to those individuals. Yes, precisely. And then another practice with recreational fishing is um, recreational fishers will often try to catch the biggest fishes which has a negative impact on the social structures because those big fishes are the older generation which would be passing on their their knowledge and their migratory patterns. Recreational fishing and hunting organizations have actually admitted that they work to block cruelty legislation which would protect animals further and some of them openly cite very circular reasoning for doing this. They oppose the legislation that would restrict hunting and fishing activities simply because those activities are currently legal. It's common sense that many laws throughout history have not aligned with what is ethical. So using the reasoning that something is okay because it's legal right now would mean that no new laws would ever be passed. That's right. And when it comes to talking about laws, definitions matter quite a bit. Sometimes terms aren't defined because they're seen as obvious. Um, So for example, in BC's Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act, it states, this act does not apply to wildlife as defined in the Wildlife Act that is not in captivity. But there's no definition of animal outlined in the act. So essentially it's a 
determination by omission. If an agency responsible for investigating prevention of cruelty to animals received a complaint in regards to a fishing captivity, uh, they, they should and would need to use some of the same criteria as they would with a dog to identify if the fish were in distress. There are many thousands of animal species, and sometimes it can be complicated with some specific species to prove distress because of the knowledge about that individual. In case of fishes, it would likely require a biologist who specializes in fish distress and could require someone who is knowledgeable about a specific species. For example, in 2016, the BCSBCA investigated the death of a sturgeon after the fish was euthanized. The fish had come from a commercial farm and was seen floating along the top of the tank before being euthanized, and sturgeon are naturally bottom feeders. As of the recording of this podcast, I'm not sure that there have been any cases of animal cruelty to fishes in captivity that have made it to court. A case in the United States was dropped specifically because the definition of animal excluded fishes. So similar to the if a tree falls in a forest and no one is around, does it make a sound conundrum? If fish are not observed suffering, are they in fact still suffering? Which is obviously completely ridiculous. It's common sense that certain activities would cause suffering to fishes as they would for any animal. And you shouldn't need studies to prove that different species can experience physical pain and psychological distress. But in fact, we do have studies proving that fish feel pain and psychological distress. They have social relationships. They even have self-awareness. Um, an interesting study that I learned of is a cleaner wrasse has been one of the few species to pass the mirror test or the mark test, which is where researchers make a mark on the animal's body that the animal would only be able to see in a mirror. And if they can recognize that the mark is on themselves and they try to get it off, that is said to be evidence that the animal has self-awareness. And in this study, the quote is, when provided with a colored tag in a modified mark test, fish attempt to remove the mark by scraping their body in the presence of a mirror, but show no response toward transparent marks or to colored marks in the absence of a mirror. So it is the the combination of seeing the colored mark on themselves in the presence of a mirror that is making them think they need to get this item off of themselves and not just oh, there is a mark on another fish. So knowing all this, you may be wondering what the best way is that you can help fishes. And again, the best way that you can help decrease the demand for harmful fishing practices is by eating plant-based. Fishes are farmed in higher numbers than any other animal. So shifting away from animal products in your diet can save hundreds of fish lives every year. The greatest impact of cutting out fish from our diets comes from cutting out farmed fishes because of the high stress methods that are used throughout the whole fish's lives and their impact on wild fish populations as well. And then the following that would be cutting out fishes caught in commercial fisheries. And this I know is challenging. Uh, certainly I had a big part of my diet as fishes for the first kind of 30 years of my life. And I think a big part for me was trying to figure out what nutrients c came from those. 
and where I could get those nutrients in other fashions. So for example, now to get omega-3s, I'm eating a lot of walnuts and flax. And there's a few videos on the website plantuniversity.ca that give great guidance for how to get some of these key nutrients. Yes, absolutely. In addition to just cutting out fishes, cutting out farmed meat and animal products in general can also decrease the demand for industrial animal agriculture, which is a major source of water pollution because of the agricultural runoff from those farms. Agricultural runoff basically leads to the overgrowth of algae, which then decomposes in the water and depletes the water of oxygen. And then the fishes who live there can't survive in oxygen depleted water. So they either die or they move elsewhere to compete for increasingly scarce territory and resources. Yeah, I've actually seen this firsthand um, when I was traveling in New Zealand where there's a lot of farming and I came across a stream between two farms that was really disgusting looking. Um, the algae was huge. It just seemed like it was impossible for any animals to live in that environment. So there's some other small changes that everyone can make to protect fish habitats. Fishes are heavily impacted by plastic pollution and rising water temperatures. So reducing your use of single-use plastics and decreasing your carbon emissions are ways you can help every day. Advocating for an end to fishing subsidies by the government and for climate-friendly and plant-forward policies is also a great way to affect systems-level change. If you'd like to learn more about the research behind fish sentience, how human activities impact fishes, and how you can help, visit vancouverhumane.ca slash fish. We'll also include links to all of the resources we discussed today in the episode blog post at vancouverhumane.ca slash podcasts. We hope you found this discussion helpful, and please join us next month for a discussion with Vancouver animal law lawyer Rebecca Bretter on dangerous dog laws. Thank you. The Informed Animal Ally is a podcast by the Vancouver Humane Society. If you found this episode helpful, please consider giving us a five-star rating and review to help us reach more supporters of animals. To support this project and other initiatives to build a kinder world for animals, you can make a donation at vancouverhumane.ca. You can also follow the Vancouver Humane Society on Facebook at Vancouver Humane Society, Instagram at Vancouver Humane, or Twitter at VanHumane. The music in this episode is the song Jonah's Message for New York by Dr. Turtle, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Public License. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being an animal ally.